Well, we have come to the end of our of our series on the life of Elisha. I don't know about you, but I feel like it's been a wild and exciting ride. These stories are so interesting, so powerful, so applicable. And as we'll see, this, this last story is no exception. For your information, our next evening service would be the second Sunday of July, July 11th. And we'll go to the New Testament and start a series in the book of Second Peter. So that's where we're going. That's coming down the pike. And let's pray now as we turn to God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give each one of us here a humble and contrite spirit, one that trembles at your Word. Help us to see more of your glory in Jesus, your Son, our Savior, and, and grow our love for him. Thank you for this series and for all that we've learned in First and Second Kings. And we pray that you bless now this time as we listen to your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our scripture reading is Second Kings chapter 13, verses 10 through 21. 2 Kings 13, 10 through 21. In the, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness with which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as the man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you been to a cemetery recently? You'll see lots of tombstones. Some big, some small, some old and crumbling, some new and gleaming. If you're like me, you like to read the inscriptions. Some are simple, so-and-so with his birth date and end date, but others have an epitaph, 
a brief statement in, in memory of that deceased person. So-and-so, beloved wife, mother, friend. That's an example of an epitaph. Think of this passage as Elisha's epitaph. If he had a tombstone, what would have been written on it? Elisha, prophet of the Lord, born this day, died this day, and anything else? What was his legacy? How should we remember him? Why does his story matter to you and to me? But before we get to Elisha, the passage begins with someone else's legacy. This passage divides into three clear sections or paragraphs. And the first one, the first section, is about Jehoash, the king of Israel. Now, turn with me in your worship guides to the chart on page three. If you have your worship guide, turn to page three. If you're like me, you're a bit rusty on the history of the kings of Israel. This chart, I think, will be helpful. So page three. First, it's helpful because it shows us the order of the kings. At the top, you see Jeroboam, who was the first king of Israel. Now, where's, where's Waldo? Where's, where's Jehoash, the guy in our passage? Well, if you look, Jehoash. Do you find him? So Jehu is right there in the middle, and two kings down from him is Jehoash. Jehoash was also called Joash. Our passage uses both names for him. He's called Jehoash and Joash. It's also confusing because he overlapped with the king of Judah, whose name was Jehoash. Is anyone confused yet? <laughs> That's okay if you are. Just refer to that chart if you get confused with the names. But Jehoash is the king in this passage. Jehoash or Joash. Now, this chart is also helpful because it evaluates the kings. Except for Jehu, who is a mixture of good and bad, all of the kings of Israel were bad. They followed in the ways of Jeroboam. Now, what did Jeroboam do that was so evil? What did he do that was so bad? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. 1 Kings 12, verse 25. And if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. I'll be reading. I'll be reading so you can listen. But 1 Kings 12, 25. What did Jeroboam do that was so evil? Starting in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn away, turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, the king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So what did Jeroboam do that was so evil? He instituted the worship of, of cows. We passed some cows, maybe you did, on the way here. Isn't that a sobering, yeah? Isn't that a sobering, weighty thought? This morning we were reminded 
of God's glory, like, like every Sunday, God's glory displayed in Jesus Christ. And here, the king of Israel, no less, is leading God's people in the worship of a golden calf. So with that in mind, turn back to 2 Kings 13. What was the legacy of King Jehoash? What did his epitaph say? Well, verse 11, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. In fact, he walked in them. He walked in them. Does that make anyone think of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Well, Jehoash was not that blessed man. He walked in the counsel of the wicked. On top of all of that, notice the name of his son. Verse 13. And Jeroboam sat on his throne. We often name our kids after someone we admire. Becky and I named both Joanna and Zachary after godly family members. I'm sure many of you have done the same thing. Why did Joash name his son Jeroboam? Was it because he admired that first king of Israel? At the end of the day, Scripture doesn't tell us, but it makes us wonder, doesn't it? These opening verses tell us the legacy of King Joash. How is he remembered in the pages of Scripture? What was his legacy? He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Imagine that being on your tombstone. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. We'll come back to this later, the theme of his depravity, his sinfulness, his evil. But for now, let's move on to the second section that starts in verse 14. 2 Kings 13, verse 14 says, Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Notice a few things. First, we've traveled back in time. This is the same king that we learned about in verses 10 through 13. It's the same Joash. Have, have any of you ever started a book by reading the last chapter or the epilogue? Well, if you haven't, you just did it as we were reading this passage. Verses 10 through 13 are like an epilogue. The story starts there, and then it moves on to this interaction with Elisha. So we're going back in time. Also, notice what Joash says to Elisha. He says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Does that sound familiar to anyone? It would have sounded familiar to Elisha. That's exactly what he said of Elijah when Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Word for word, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Remember, the prophet represented God's army. So the prophet, in this case, Elisha, is the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. Joash knows that it's been really, really helpful to have Elisha around. It's been really helpful. We saw in 2 Kings 6 and 7 that he was a big help against the Syrians. If you remember, he even knew what the king of Syria was saying in his bedroom when Elisha was miles away. But now Elisha has a terminal illness. And Joash, the king, is thinking... Oh no. What are we going to do now? Joash weeps before Elisha. And his grief makes, makes even more sense when we 
consider the context. Do you remember, this was a few weeks ago, but do you remember the story of Hazael, the assassin from 2 Kings 8? That was a morning, that was a morning service a few weeks ago. Elisha said that Hazael would become king of Syria and wreak havoc on Israel. Earlier in chapter 13, we read that, that that's exactly what happened. So earlier in our passage, I'll read verse 3, which says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria. A little later it says, For there was not left to Jehoahaz, and that was Joash's father. So it was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. So do you see the point? Joash has inherited a military like the military of Iceland or Costa Rica. You know, it's nothing to be spoken about. There's nothing, absolutely nothing he can do against the military might of a, of a country, of a people like Syria. Israel is weak, and Joash knows it. So with all of that in mind, with Joash coming to Elisha, weeping, hear, hear again what, listen again to what Elisha tells him, starting in verse 15. Elisha says, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot, and he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. What do the arrows symbolize? Victory. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. All is not lost. The Lord will give Israel victory over Syria. Elisha, this, this sick and dying prophet, proclaims good news of victory. But wait, wait a second, stop. The Lord will give victory to who? To who? To, to Joash? Elisha, have you forgotten who this man is? This man will not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam. The man who weeps before you now is leading God's people in the worship of cows. This pagan king deserves, what does he deserve? Defeat, not victory. Elisha, what in the world are you doing? Here's the point. Good news comes to a sinner who least deserves it. And friends, isn't that the gospel? Good news comes to sinners who least deserve it. When we were most weak, not dominated by Syria, but dominated by sin, by Satan, by death. When we were most weak, a Savior came with good news of victory, release, freedom. When we were most undeserving, not worshiping calves, but worshiping ourselves and our 21st century idols. When we were most undeserving, a Savior came with good news of pardon. This is, this is the gospel. And, and as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought of Romans 5, where Paul says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
But Joash never repented. He never turned from the sins of Jeroboam. He never turned to the salvation only by to the salvation only found by faith in Jesus Christ. Have you? I was once like Joash. You were once like him too. But our stories as Christians have such a different ending. By the grace of God, we turned from our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. I am stunned by God's kindness here to a pagan king. I am stunned. What did Joash deserve a victory? But that's the point, isn't it? The gospel is the proclamation, the announcement, the heralding of good news to weak and undeserving people. That's the gospel. So we've seen that Elijah had good news for Joash. And the story continues in verses 18 and 19. Let me read those for you. Verses 18 and 19. And Elisha said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. These verses, as you study them, they raise a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of unanswered questions. But the gist is this. Joash responds half-heartedly to God's promise. It's a half-hearted response. Joash knows, what does he know? He knows that the arrows represent victory. He just heard the good news of promised, assured victory over Syria. Still, he only strikes the ground three times, and Elisha rebukes him for it. He responds half-heartedly. He responds with an evident lack of enthusiasm. One commentator says that it's as if God gives Joash a blank check. Here, Joash, take as much as you want. And he says, well, I'll just take a little. The result, then, is a qualified victory. Instead of completely destroying Syria... Joash would only win three times. And if you keep reading, you'll see that this promise was fulfilled. Joash got his three victories, and that's all. So what are we to make of this bumbling on the part of Joash? What are we to make of this? How does this apply to us? The lesson seems to be that God's promises call for faith. God's promises call us to respond wholeheartedly with a whole person commitment. Let me explain with another example. In the Gospel of Matthew, you know that familiar passage when Jesus tells us to not be anxious. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor weep nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And then, as you know, Jesus ends with these words, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The promise sounds really good, right? All these things will be added to you. Who wouldn't want that? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Eh, can I punt that one away? Do I have to be all in? So do you see what I mean? 
God's promises call us to respond in a committed, wholehearted faith. One commentator said this. I thought it was I thought it was helpful. He said, remember, God feeds the birds, but does not throw the food into the nest. Remember, God feeds the birds, but does not throw the food into the nest. Hmm. It got me thinking. I hope it gets you thinking. God's promises, as, as we see here in the words of Jesus, God's promises are to care for us, to provide for us, to meet our needs. And at the same time, he calls us to seek him first. He calls us to do that. As we think about our responsibility in responding to God's promises and, and to his word, I thought of these words from, from a counselor who said, We turn from darkness to light, from false gods to the only true God, from death to life, from unbelief to faith. You ask for help because you need help. You repent. You believe, trust, seek, take refuge. You're honest. You remember, listen, obey, fear, hope, love, give thanks, weep, confess, praise, delight, walk. Notice all of these active verbs. They speak of wholehearted, whole person action. I thought that was a helpful reminder for me. I hope it's a helpful reminder for you. God's promises to you as a Christian Call for faith, call for obedience, call for a whole person response. And there's good news, brothers and sisters. At the end of the day, God's promises don't depend on me. They don't depend on you. Instead, they depend on the righteousness of another, on Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that is all the more reason to respond in faith. We can take that check and cash it in full. So, as we come to the end of verse 19, what do we see, quote-unquote, inscribed on Elisha's tombstone? Elisha, prophet of the Lord, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, herald of victory and good news. And anything else? We could add one more thing. Resurrector of the dead. We're used to things happening posthumously or after someone dies. After someone dies, his book might be published. She might receive a special honor, things like that. But to raise someone from the dead? Elisha is in the grave. He died and he... His body resurrects someone who just died? Listen again to, to verses 20 and 21. I think, I think the story of Elisha... The story of his life and ministry is filled with all of these passages that make you think, wait, I didn't know that was in there. Well, this, this might be one of those. Verses 20 and 21. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. I don't know what would have been more shocking to, to be that group of men burying someone and to see this marauding band on the horizon and then to throw the, the body of their friend into this grave and he, he comes back to life this is a true story this actually happened Elisha's ministry in case you were thinking that it might just fizzle out well it's nothing like Elijah who went up into heaven in case you were thinking it might just fizzle out well it doesn't it ends with a bang 
As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is no ghost in the graveyard. This unnamed man was raised bodily. Even in death, Elisha resurrects the dead. It's a posthumous resurrection of the dead. This is an Easter sermon waiting to be preached. It really is. God's prophet resurrects the dead even in his death. Is this not a picture of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection? This is one of four times in the Old Testament when someone who died is raised to life again. One of four times. Each one, each one of these incidences, each one of these true stories is a picture. It's a preview for us. Now, as you read this story and think, boy, I'm glad the New Testament is a little more tame and predictable. I want to read for you a passage from uh, Matthew. It's in your worship guide if you want to follow along on page two. So lest you think, oh boy, the wild true stories are only found in the Old Testament. Take a look at this. Matthew 27. This is found on page two in your worship guides. Right after the death of Jesus. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Those, those wild, hard-to-believe-but-true stories aren't limited to the Old Testament. After the, resur- after the death of Jesus, they came out of the tombs and went into the holy city and appeared to many. So as I said, each one of these Old Testament resurrections is a preview. It's a preview of the bodily resurrection to come. The bodily resurrection. And I want to spend just a few moments reflecting on that truth. The the truth of a bodily resurrection. So you are just on page two. I want to point out a few things from Westminster Shorter Catechism 37, which is also there on your worship guides, page 2, question 37 of the Shorter Catechism says, or it asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer is, the souls of believers are, at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? It means to be a union of body and soul. God made each one of us in his image as a body-soul unity. Body and soul united together. Now, the Catechism mentions union with Christ. That might be a, a theme that you're familiar with. We're not going to delve into it now. But if you're a Christian, it's not just your soul that's united to Christ. If you go back and look at what the Shorter Catechism sums up from Scripture, it's not just your soul that's united to Christ. Your body is too. Union with Christ is not just your soul. It's you in your whole person, body and soul. This body-soul unity, I think, helps to explain why a viewing is so disturbing. It's disturbing to see someone's body lying in a coffin and... As you look at that, the, person, the person's body, you, you know that's, that's him, but it's not him. That's her, 
but it's also not her. We're witnessing that unnatural separation or sundering of the person. Body and soul split apart. That's one of the reasons why a viewing, I think, is so disturbing for us. But what's true of Jesus will be true of his people. We too will be raised up in glory. We will be made perfectly blessed, not just in soul, but also in body. Body and soul in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. Now, why does this matter? We could, we could talk about many different points of application, but here are two. Two brief points of application. First, discern the lie in our culture. Discern the lie in our mainstream culture. <clears throat> our culture has a very different, a very different theology of man or a different view of man. For example, in the transgender movement, the person is not a unity of body and soul. It's not, according to the transgender movement. No, transgender ideology assumes a disunity between the body and soul. The real you is who you are on the inside. And what's on the outside needs to transition accordingly. Transgender ideology, this disunity between the body and soul. The real you is who you are on the inside. What's on the outside, whatever that is, has to catch up with what's on the inside. But how far from the truth? The real you, the real you is is who you are on the inside and on the outside. God made us in his image as a union of body and soul. We don't define who we are either on the inside or on the outside. God does. So much more could be said, but as we think about the truth of bodily resurrection, this gets us thinking about the lie that we hear and see all around us in our culture today. So discern the lie. The second point is this. Grieve as one who has hope. Have you been to a cemetery recently? Sometimes we don't go simply to look at inscriptions for for pleasure. Remember, each person whom Jesus calls to himself will be raised up in glory. No question. Each person united to Christ in soul and in body will receive resurrection life. Each person, doesn't matter how old or how young. And as you think about it, it can't be otherwise. It can't be otherwise. What's true of Jesus is true of his people. As Christians, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We grieve as those who have hope. So in hope, we grieve the death of our loved ones. In hope, we also grieve our present bodily suffering. We grieve that our bodies don't work the way they used to. We also grieve that our bodies, in some cases, never worked the way they used to. Our outer self, as the Bible says so clearly, is wasting away. And we grieve that reality. I do. You do. Are you grieving with hope? Christians can. Christ is coming again. We can encourage one another. Let's encourage one another with these words. So does Elisha's ministry matter to you and me? Does it matter? 
It sure does. Yes, his epitaph says it all. His, his tombstone, so to speak, says it all. In his life and even in his death, Elisha previews our matchless Savior. Jesus is the prophet of all prophets who leads God's armies, who proclaims the gospel, who resurrects the dead. But Jesus, thanks be to God, has no epitaph. He has no tombstone. No, the empty tomb proclaims he is risen. And because that's true of him, if you're in Christ, you too will be raised bodily. Amen.